Jerry O'Hanlon, you're an Irish Jesuit, you are a theologian, and you have been reading Fratelli Tutti, the latest encyclical from Pope Francis. Translate that as what, Jerry, for us? Well, it's literally translated as all brothers. Yeah. Uh, I noticed the first line, because of the controversy surrounding it, refers to brothers and sisters, but the original, well, the Italian, uh, certainly refers to all brothers. Yeah. So this is maybe something we might have to speak about first. Um, it has been criticism that has been levelled roundly at the, the encyclical, which contains many wonderful things, which we'll talk about in a moment. But even in the uh, references at the end, and the Pope has expanded the references outside the norm, which is that Popes usually do referencing just other encyclicals to include theologians. And he mentions then people of note like Bishop Tutu, Martin Luther King, King, Mahatma Gandhi, there is singularly no reference to any influence by a woman, either theologian or campaigner or social justice worker in any shape, form or fashion. That coupled with the title does create problems for some people, Jerry. Yeah, and I think rightly, I mean, I think, as you said, there's wonderful things in this uh, encyclical and we get on to that. But the fact that his for example, 288 footnotes, not one of them refer to a female author. He mentions, as you've noted, various people. Uh, he's, he's inspired by St. Francis. He mentions the Grand Imam, with whom he signed a declaration in 2019. He mentions Charles de Foucault, and then the people you've mentioned, uh, Luther King, Tutu, Gandhi. He doesn't mention any women. And then I think there is a paragraph, it's paragraph 23, and he comes out with two statements in that paragraph. And, you know, when you listen to it, it's absolutely true what he says. And then you say, this is the Catholic Church saying this. How can he avoid being accused of double speak? So the paragraph says, Similarly, the organization of societies worldwide is still far from reflecting clearly that women possess the same dignity and identical rights as men. So think of that. Mm. Societies are organized in such a way that women possess the same dignity and they're not organized that way. And then he goes on to say, we say one thing with words, but our decisions and reality tell another story. So again, I mean, this is the Catholic Church speaking, mm. and we, we do say that women are equal to men, and then in so many ways, women are not visible. And the Pope himself, to be very fair to him, has been very strong at saying we need more visibility of women. We need women in decision-making roles. This is his intention for this October month, and he's issued a video along these lines. But how come then this encyclical has this unfortunate almost invisibility of women? So it's very, it's very puzzling, really. I think at best it's a distraction, and at worst it's a, it's a real stumbling block to reading the document in the inclusive way that he undoubtedly intended it to be, because it's very clear from the start, as I say, he wants it to be addressed to men and women. As you say, you know, the Pope himself has in many ways spoken about women, he has involved women in various things. Why does he not see that? Is it just a complete blind spot? And also 
trying to get my head around it. I mean, does anybody else read these things that popes write and say, another eye looking at it and say, Holy Father, do you not think you might want to mention some women? Does nobody see it? Yeah, that's that's a very good point. And the scholar Phyllis Sagano, who's you know, researched very much the female dia- diaconate and was on the paper commission, the first paper commission on that, and wrote an article in the current, I think it's the current or the last issue of studies on that issue. She's uh, commenting on that. She says, why wasn't it editorially shown to a group of women beforehand who would be aware of it? I mean... It, God knows men should be aware of it too. Mm. But ideally, there are women now, that's part of the good thing he's done, he's put women in various congregations within the Vatican itself. So he's not, he's not short of people that he can turn to. So it would be surprising if that hadn't been done. It's, it's, it's really... And why hasn't it been done? It's hard to speculate, Pat. I mean, mm. one doesn't know what goes on in a person's mind, but it's perfectly understandable I think to us all that none of us is infallible the Pope himself doesn't doesn't talk about papal infallibility he talks more often of the infallibility of the census fidelium so he doesn't get everything right and although I think he likes women from anything I've seen of his interactions and he has argued that women should be part of decision making and that in some way the power of orders so ordination should be separate from decision making which is quite a radical thing even if nothing has been done yet to affect that still there seems to me to be some sort of I don't know what you'd call it a, a blind spot there with regard to the socio-political implications of the fact that women are equal to men yeah. and maybe he's trapped into that paradigm of complementarity in the way that it was worked out previously. I mean, there may well be innate differences between women and men. It may be proper to talk of complementarity. That's another issue, but not at the level of functional subordination. Surely, we know that. We know that women are well capable of running businesses, of running societies, of being prime ministers, of being presidents and so on. So why does that kind of lack within the Catholic Church? And it does then leap out at you when you see sentences about equality and we say one thing with words but our decisions in reality tell another story and a kind of in a way that's most unlike Pope Francis because he's known for his authenticity but this almost feels like double speak how can you say one thing and then clearly the institution that you represent is pursuing a different kind of practice. So it's a real, to me, stumbling block, uh, very regrettable. When Pope Francis was publishing his various, he's, he's now got three encyclicals, but the first major document wasn't an encyclical, it was the joy of the gospel. And in that he made it very clear that if the mission of the church was to be successful, the church would have to be reformed. And the reform of the church had to take place through a dialogue between the faithful, the theologians, and the bishops and pope. He called it the synodal way. And so clearly, theologians, for the most part, and faithful are saying to the bishops and the pope, you have to change with regard to women. Mm. And sooner or later that will be heard but unfortunately this document gives evidence that we're still on the way we haven't arrived there yet I think that's very true and it is unfortunate as you say because there is so much meat and really reflective helpful material in this encyclical so let's maybe move and look at that 
um, my question to you, Jerry, is St. Francis does seem to be very important to the Pope. I mean, the Fratelli Tutti is a quote from Francis. He released it in Assisi. It was St. Francis' feast day. He took Francis' name. What is it, do you think, about Francis that speaks so closely to Pope Francis? Well, we know from the Data Sea it was Francis's connection with nature, but here he, he mentions that, but he mentions that Francis was, of course, connected above all with his brothers and sisters. And it was just that, I suppose, that change of paradigm, if you like, from dominion or lordship or authority to something that was much more equal and that favoured the poor and il poverello was the word referred to him in uh, Italian, that, that the poor one who was at home with the poor. And then somebody, of course, who reached out beyond Catholicism beyond Christianity to Islam at a time when that was almost unheard of. So at the time of the Crusades, when there was enmity, Francis moved out to the Sultan and was able to dialogue across uh, religious boundaries. So that kind of preference for dialogue and encounter and touching into the humanity of people before you put labels with regard to religions or with regard to status in society. I think that's something that Francis himself feels deeply and of course it has been part of his invitation, not just within the church and this letter, this encyclical is addressed to people of all goodwill, to enter into some kind of a dialogue that would allow us to encounter one another at our basic humanity. And he sees Francis as somebody who did this, if you like, in a supreme kind of way. So there is a kinship, I think, with Francis that goes very deep. He says that it's a, a social encyclical and it's interesting, it is in the tradition of other encyclicals in terms of the phrase they use, the universal destination of the goods of the earth. In other words, that if one country or group of people have a surplus, they, it, they belong to all the earth. What do you think is the difference, nonetheless, that he brings to this social encyclical from his pen? Well, first he has a very astute reading of the signs of the times. So in chapter one, he, he looks at what's happening in the world today and he looks at the kind of aggression and nationalism and disregard for the common good. So the common diagnosis that we're too focused on individualism, that kind of neoliberalism, and of course the, the environment. So he's very strong on just looking at the world today. So that's a new reading. You couldn't have done the same reading even as recently as Caritas and Veritate, the encyclical of Pope Benedict. Things have changed, they've moved on. One of the ways they've moved on is the proliferation and flourishing of social media. And it's a very good commentary on the reach of social media, positively and negatively. And he says, for example, it's a, it's a very, very pertinent take, I think. It's in paragraph 45. He says, things that until a few years ago could not be said by anyone without the loss of universal respect can now be said with impunity and in the crudest terms, even by some political figures. So you just think of the way some politicians address their people and address their opponents and the crudity of the language and the dismissiveness and so on. I think he's hitting onto something there. And so I think that there's certainly that kind of a 
Jewish reading of the signs of the times. I think Danny has a great gift for drawing on Christian sources in a way that opens it up for not just Christians, but for people of goodwill. So the way he unfolds the story of the Good Samaritan is masterly. Just the, the way in which you get behind labels like priest and Levite and Samaritan just to the person in need and the ability to put aside all your important business and your status and just attend to the wounds of somebody who needs you. And he's very good at asking us then, the reader, to say, who are you in that? Are you the Levite? Are you the Good Samaritan? Are you the wounded person? Etc. And he says at some stage, well, actually, if we're being honest, we're probably a bit of everyone there at different times in our lives. And I think that's so true. But he wants to try and invite us into something. And it's, again, it's very interesting because you mentioned the different people he draws on. Uh, he draws on Paul Ricoeur, who's a Protestant, who's a big philosopher, big into hermeneutics and so on. And his analysis of who the neighbor is, is the neighbor just somebody that I'm associated with, that has a social role that I engage with for business reasons or whatever, or is he in the French le prochain, proche, in other words, near to me, somebody that I make near to me. And that's again in the spirit of Francis of Assisi, that that idea that everyone, no matter how geographically distant from me, how spatially distant, is in some way kin to me. They're my sister, they're my brother, they're part of me because we're all sisters and brothers, sons and daughters of God, that kind of kinship there. So I think that's a part of of social teaching that he has a very good feel for, just bringing it in touch with the scriptures. And then the bit you mentioned in terms of the universal destination of goods, he makes it perhaps clearer than ever before that the right to private property is subordinate to the primary rights that we all have to basic goods, in other words, shelter and food and so on. And that's brought out very clearly. I think it's probably brought out in a way that might annoy various people who are very wedded to the right to private property. It's a very strong thing in our own constitution, for example. Mm. But he's very strong on that. And then, I suppose, more clearly than ever before, but not in an absolute way yet, he is questioning the just war theory in a way which He's more or less saying because of the proliferation of nuclear and chemical weapons, it's very hard to imagine justification for war in today's world. And then he is absolute about his stance, and this is new in Catholic social teaching in in terms of his pontificate, that capital punishment is never correct. So he added that to the catechism of the Catholic Church within the last few years. And it's a kind of firming up of a position towards which John Paul II was headed. Uh, Benedict never got there, if you like, but Francis has firmly nailed the church to that mast, if you like. So there are novelties, but it's not so much the novelty. It's just a new way of putting things, I suppose. And it's like a compendium of his own thinking over the last few years. He, He has brought together sermons and addresses and talks that he's given and stuff he's received from others coming into him and he's stitched it together if you like into a new compendium of his teaching which has deepened some of the Catholic Church and 
social teaching and radicalised it, but not a whole lot of novelty, if you like, there. Uh, certainly, you mentioned two neuralgic points for the alt-right, which would be the death penalty and the just war. We won't go into that today. We know the, the attacks that have been levied on him because of his stance, particularly on the death penalty, where he's accused of changing the tradition of the, the church, indeed. But uh, interesting when you also mentioned the Good Samaritan there, the way he did that, quite Ignatian as well, drawing the person into the scripture story. And that runs through the whole encyclical, a sense of everything going back to Christ, everything going back to who Christ was and drawing from that the sense of our solidarity and of our oneness. You might say a bit about that, how Francis sees fraternity. Yeah, I mean, there is that sense that we, because we're all made in the image and likeness of God and we're sons and daughters, that by just by being human, our common humanity, that we share something much, much deeper than any of our differences. And lots of our differences are to be treasured. So he's very keen on respecting the local and indigenous cultures and while at the same time calling us to go beyond that, to understand that there is a universality of our links with one another. And I think as well, it's interesting you mentioned Christ being at the centre. Christ is certainly at the centre, but not in a way that excludes those who don't believe in Christ. So this is as much an exercise in Christian humanism as it is in Christian theology. He's keen to identify what is in common between people of religion, of Christianity, of other religions, and of those of no religion at all. And going back to what you said about the Ignatian reading of the Good Samaritan, I think that that note of discernment going right through it, so that when he talks about building bridges rather than walls, and when he talks about the kind of aggression and the way in which people, why are they aggressive? Because there's fear and there's insecurity. But he tries to persuade us to see that that aggression and that defensiveness and the way that it, for example, writes migrants out of the script, in the end doesn't lead to happiness. It doesn't lead to peace. It doesn't lead to security, the security that we crave. So he's quite understanding, for example, in the migrants debate of people who are afraid of accepting too many migrants, that notion. And, and he's very clear that migrants have to be integrated properly. But at the same time, he's urging us towards greater generosity. And it's, it's not so much a moralizing uh, Catholic social teaching. Sometimes Catholic social teaching can come across like that. He's more just proposing a different vision, proposing a dream, inviting us into dialogue about this. And he, he offers it as what he calls a modest contribution to a discussion. So there's that note all the time, even when he's been quite strong about what he says, of wanting people to come into the dialogue in the way that he's treated the Good Samaritan, recognizing that all of us at different times take on different roles, but suggesting that there is this common humanity and that we're saved as one human race in the end, 
not as separate individuals at war with one another. And he noted, as he was writing this encyclical, on solidarity and, as you've explained it very well there, the unity of every human being. You talked about recur, the the neighbour, the person next to us, the closeness of that. And then along comes COVID-19, which in a way pushed people back into isolation and also into technology, which helped them a lot during that isolation and continues to do so. Yeah. It's very interesting because COVID revealed, if you like, some of the things he was already talking about, the fragmentation that had occurred in terms of, we'll say, multilateralism in the world or the breakdown of the rule of law. I mean, I was smiling when I did it. He said, he quotes that phrase, which is a classical Latin maxim, pacta sunt servanda, that treaties should be kept. And I was thinking of the Brexit when I I heard it, because there there are various things which I'm sure he wasn't thinking about, but I'm sure Trump and his supporters would would have been thinking of various um, realities when he talks about things about the, the aggressive nature of campaigning and so on. But it's interesting when he does talk about the COVID thing, he has this phrase, which I think is very good in paragraph seven, anyone who thinks that the only lesson to be learned, this is from COVID, was the need to improve what we are already doing or to refine existing systems and regulations is denying reality. In other words, he sees it as a real opportunity for a reset in terms of our world, that it has shown up these um, fault lines. And in terms of technology, as you say, he is very open to the ways in which technology has, has brought us together. And yet, he says, the kind of meeting that can take place on social media lacks something as well. He goes into it in a very vivid way, a very Francis way, if you like. He talks about the limitations of digital communication in terms of not being in touch with the body language. He gets right down and says, you don't smell the person. You don't (laughs) get a sense of whether they're perspiring or sweating. You don't know whether they're blushing or they're pale. And it's a very vivid kind of illustration of his very hands-on thing, that to be authentic in the end, there's something inescapable about corporeal, if you like, interaction, that we we are bodily creatures. And while technology can can certainly help, and has been a great help in this COVID uh, situation, nonetheless, there's something which we miss and continue to miss if encounter is to be authentic. And of course, he does instance all the ways in which social media allows us to indulge in venom and prejudice and get into silos. And and that's certainly a downside that he alerts us to and that we're very aware of, I think. If you like, it, it reinforces the whole focus on relativism, that there is no objective truth. We get into echo chambers, we listen to what people around us agree with us and our own opinions are reinforced. And he's all the time trying to invite us out of that. Listen to the people who think differently. Try and understand their concerns, the truth that may be behind the position that you disagree with, encouraging that kind of dialogue, which of course is very difficult. But I think it's a very right thing to to ask people to do. It's part of loving the enemy. It's part of being Catholic. It's part of a church which knows how to conduct itself with 
progressives and with conservatives and not to be simply banning people but allowing for that kind of rich dialogue to take place. And you did mention it was Mixum Gatherum in terms of all uh, lots of other things that he has written, and especially Laudato Si. And I'm thinking of maybe what is fresh in this is that through Laudato Si and through this encyclical on fraternity, there's a sense of calling for the same type of respect for creation, for animals, for the trees, for the world. The disposition we have toward that is not different from the disposition we have to our fellow human beings. Yeah, I mean, he, he takes that up very early on with regard to Francis of Assisi. And he's very clear, of course, Francis has inspired these pages. But he does mention the way in which Francis saw the sun and the moon and the rain as his brothers and sisters. And he likens that then to the relationship that. But he does say, I think, as well, that the relationship to human beings is even deeper. The relationship to nature is, of course, much closer than we have been wont to consider it under that technocratic paradigm. And Francis of Assisi does talk about uh, the closeness to nature, but he quotes him in number two here. Francis felt himself as brother to the sun, the sea and the wind, yet he knew that he was even closer to those of his own flesh. And so he does link the two together. And I do have to say what you were saying about just the bits and pieces. He His 288 references, a lot of them are to his own works. A lot of them are to previous addresses and so on. Then there are papal works and then there are other poets and theologians and writers and so on. All male, as I said. But I think the fact that it's such a potpourri, it's such a kind of gathering together of previous addresses and so on, makes it a little difficult to read as well. Even though often he's quoting himself, it doesn't have the same first-person address quality. You don't feel he's always addressing you in the immediate kind of way. It's like it's been stitched together. Now, sometimes he breaks through that and you, you get his own voice very, very clearly. But it's not, in that sense, as easy a read. It's more like something that's put together from various other talks and you get long quotations introduced by one or two words. And so I didn't find it as uh, easy to read as uh, some of his uh, previous documents. Finally, Jerry. then, in terms of this encyclical, there are a lot of isms that get a, a whack in it, but it is broad and a lot of people could be reading it and pointing a finger here or pointing a finger there. But is there enough wriggle room at the same time for others to say, well, that doesn't apply to the me if I'm a capitalist or a neoliberal, a populist or whatever? Or do you think that he does nail it and it will make an impact? Well, I think he nails it. But as you know, going back to Aquinas, uh, everything is received according to the mind of the recipient. People will find ways of, of avoiding it. And he does very clearly that that kind of interpersonal model of the Good Samaritan. He branches out to talk about social love and about political love. And he does particularly in politics, because that's where it, it'll get nailed in the end. He does distinguish between populism on the one hand and neoliberalism on the other and is calling for something in between. He's not saying populism is all wrong. He's not saying neoliberalism is all wrong. But when he's calling for something in between, it's an invitation to get into that space of dialogue and trying to, to find it together. And I suppose your populist or your out-and-out neoliberal will find ways in which uh, it can be dismissed. 
And I think that's always the risk one takes. I think he has nailed it in terms of the analysis. He's shown convincing reasons why neither of these two extremes meet up to the reality of the world. And he's proposing a vision for us to move to something different. He's proposing a means, which is this kind of dialogue format. But then it's up to us. And I think that's going back to what we talked about initially too. The Pope can't do everything. And the Pope, in terms of the church, can't do everything. And we're all called upon to act. And again, no more than what Laudato see. this is where local hierarchies and local groups come into their own. What will the Irish Church do about this? What will the Jesuits do about it? What will Eamon Martin do about it? And that's always the call. I think we've got so used just to looking to the Pope in the Catholic Church. That's the big, I think, default position. And he's trying to shift that with this decentralization thing while maintaining the ability to empower, to inspire, to spark things off in us. But it's like he does the sparking off, but we've got to respond. It's over to us now. And that's what we're doing now, trying to tease this out. And you're doing by promoting it and publishing it. And uh, that's part of the reception of the document, which is the key part.